Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from 1 Samuel um, 17, verses 31 to 40 and 54 to 58. Listen to what God is saying to you. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord, who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his head, and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul set him over the army, and all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. So if you are the praying kind, please pray with me. God of grace and power and might, God of all of our ages, God of our times of anger and our times of prayer, our times of sorrow and our times of joy, our times of confusion and our times of certainty with you. We know that you are with us in all things, O oh God, as you are with Jesus even unto death and in life again. And we pray that whatever happens this day, we would move forward with that knowledge, with that intimacy with you that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, the movements of our bodies would be yours, O oh God. And if they aren't, if they should stray, if we should hurt each other, if we should harm each other, that we should find ways 
to turn back towards you, as you are always inviting us to do, and know a second and a 70th and a 77th chance for grace and mercy and love that you are always offering us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a four-and-a-half-year-old and an almost two-year-old, and there are two main things I've learned from parenting, I'd say, spiritually. Uh, the first one is that they come out fully cooked, turns out. People are people from the moment they are born. If I ever had told myself the lie that you make your kid into who they are or that you cause them to like or not like a certain thing or be or not be a certain thing, that lie was eliminated the minute I met my children and in the first minutes of their life they were just totally different human beings. Just in every possible way. My older one is, um, if you like the Enneagram, the eightest eight who ever aided. And when she wanted to eat, she would bang her head against my shoulder to say, it is time to eat. I have decided. My younger one is like a loosey-goosey, chill, little, like, surfer dude in a baby. And he could have gone forever and would just be like, yeah, okay, I'll go get it later. And they were that way from the moment they were born. There's something about us um, that is there and that then is developing the whole life long. Before I had kids, I pastored a church that had a children's moment at the beginning of every worship. Um, and for a long time, that moment had been a time to sort of show off the kids, right? To like show off how cute and adorable they were. Um, and then we decided as a community to start calling it our time for youngest Christians. And all of a sudden, something changed, right? Because we realized that pain and sorrow, that anger and prayer are a part of your life every single year that you're alive. And you're a whole person and you're struggling with God the whole time. The second thing I learned um, from being a parent was actually something that I learned from watching my husband, which is um, he was someone who, he has a younger brother, but they're pretty close in age. He has some cousins he loved, but they're pretty close in age. And so he hadn't really spent a lot of time around babies before. Um, this was actually a sort of point of contention when we were trying to figure out whether to get married. He was like, I don't know if I'm going to want kids. I don't know if I'm going to like this. Like, I have no idea how this is going to be for me. And I was like, well, I'm all in, right? So we got to decide together. And we decided together. We decided to go for it. We had this kid. And he had um, had a strong calling to his vocation for many years before. He was a high school math teacher, and he loved teaching math, and he loved that job, and he always thought that he would go back to it. And when we had our first child... I was going to take my maternity leave, and then he was going to be off for the summer, and then we were going to put her in daycare because we both loved our jobs, and we were going to go back to them. And within a week, he said, taking care of her is the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. I love this, and I think I'm really good at this. I want to do this. And he ended up staying at home with our kids and always with our babies. He has nannied another baby because <laughs> it turns out baby care is this like hidden spiritual gift he had. And so he always has two or three babies in our home. He has them on a schedule. If you want to hear how we handle daylight savings time, we have a little thing called adjusted family time where we move six minutes a day for 10 days in a row. <laughs> it's a whole system, right? This man knows how to take care of a baby. This man knows how to do nap time. And it was extraordinary to watch someone at 33 discover a whole part of their soul they didn't know existed before, right? And for you, it might not be kids, but there's something. And it was this real lesson for me. I had come to think that I was fully cooked because I had chosen a job and chosen a partner. I thought, well, this is me. This is who I am. But it turns out <laughs> grace is happening all of the time. That's what sanctification means. God and the Holy Spirit are moving in our lives all of the time. And you, at any moment, 
at 33 or 53 or 73 or 103 might discover a whole new part of your soul, a whole new thing that God is doing in your life that you didn't know about before. How incredible. I once was talking to my mother about what she hoped for um, when she retired a year or two ago. What do you want to do? What have you been looking forward to? And what she said was, I just never want to stop growing. Right? That's the only thing she's scared of is stasis. And that's all to say, at all of those ages, being a baby, being a child, being an adult, being a young adult, a middle adult, an older adult, how God is moving in our lives is important to pay attention to. And it's happening to all of us. No one's left out of that spiritual process. No one is left out of that equation. And it happens a little bit differently at every single stage of our lives. And that's what our sermon series is about this month, is the stages of life, these different kind of stages of development of being a person. How does God hit you at each one of them? What are the main spiritual questions of what we're going through at any given time? And we're talking about each of those stages for a couple of reasons. One is you're probably deep in one of them, right? And so it's going to be helpful to talk about in middle adulthood, how do you figure things out? How do you make meaning? Another is we are an intergenerational community. And how can we see all of the gifts of that? That people all along the age spectrum in different places of it than us are essential to knowing who Jesus is are going through something with God that is important and of value to our community and to us, and how can we treasure each and every part of that? The other is that these questions we ask in each stage of life, or at least according to the psychologist we use to do research for the sermon series, who I guess you know might be disproved in a couple of years, but it's useful for now, um, we never stop asking any of the questions of one stage. They are all meaningful to us our whole life long. So throughout these, this series, you're going to hear about four main stages of life. We worked from Erickson's eight stages of development. He has eight. We didn't want to do like a two and a half month long sermon series, so we squashed them a little bit into four. Um, and the, the one Sunday, we're not doing them in chronological order so that you get out of the habit of thinking of yourself as being done with one stage because you're never done. Um, one Sunday is going to be childhood. Here are the main questions of the spiritual questions of childhood are, am I safe and am I capable? Right? The questions of being a child are really about, can I do it? Like, what can I learn to do? <laughs> what am I capable of? And is my environment and are the people around me safe? And as many of us know from childhood, sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> and then what do you do? And what are the, the other kinds of family, the other kinds of community? How do we meet people who are unsafe? Am I safe and am I capable? These are the questions of childhood. And it turns out there are questions your whole life long. Every time anything around you changes, anytime you're in a new job, a new environment, all of a sudden this question of am I safe and am I capable comes back to visit your soul again, right? You're never done with it. The second stage is like adolescence and young adulthood, which we're matching because in our modern culture, they often flow like back and forth from one another in a world where um, for a lot of us, it's harder to get the markers that have always been the markers of young adulthood, right? Buying a house, having a permanent position, you know, doing any of these things. Adolescence and young adulthood come a little bit squashy, but also you're asking the same main questions during those periods, which are, who am I? That's the big identity period. Like, who, who am I? What is my deal? Who am I meant to be? What am I called to by God? And then the second question, which really surprised me of young adulthood, is can I love and be loved 
all these psychologists say one of the most important things about young adulthood is that you generally are moving from a place in which a lot of your relationships were cultivated, right? You had your family, and they just were your core relationships. You went to school, and they just were your friends. And then in young adulthood, you all of a sudden have to figure out all of your human relationships for yourself. And it's really rough, and it's really hard, <laughs> figuring out friendship and love and all of that stuff. And, and can I love and be loved? It can never be separated from identity questions, these questions of interpersonal relationship, because it turns out we're not into independent people or interdependent people. So who am I and who am I in relationship with are really closely connected. Next stage is middle adulthood. When you talk about middle adulthood, um, you're gonna hear basically one question, this like overwhelming question of middle adulthood, which is what is my legacy? What is my legacy? <laughs> what do I wanna leave behind? What is meaning? Uh, I almost hesitate to tell you this if you're in middle adulthood, but maybe it'll be empowering and helpful, which is that almost every study of lifelong happiness makes the same U-shaped arc. And this is especially true the richer the country is that you're in. So the US, we're really in trouble, um, which is that you start out at maximum happiness. Kids are happy, they're present, right? Unless they're experiencing trauma, they're like, Life is great, life is fun, I get, you know, whatever. Like, I, I am present to whatever's happening to me. And then as you get older, it's just a steady decline. <laughs> it just goes down and down. Every year, your average happiness goes down and down until you're about 45, 48. Because every year, you're just like, oh, man, like this too, you know? There's just like a disillusionment that happens. And so you go down and down and down. And then all of a sudden, in your early 50s, it starts to go back starts to go up and up and up and up until the people who are the oldest match the people who are the youngest in happiness. Because, if you'll excuse me for, for cursing just this one time, right, you just like, you just like lose fucks to give every single year from the time, you know what I mean? Like that's what happens. This is what's happening psychologically, is that like every year after you turn 52, you're like, okay, well like, I guess this is life, and I guess I'm gonna get used to it and find a way to be happy and joyful, right? So this real giftedness, which then in older adulthood, um, the real thing about older adulthood is that you have to acknowledge that death will occur, right? At every other stage of life, you can kind of ignore it. Like, it's not good for you to ignore it. You should be asking this question no matter what phase of life you're in, but you can pretend. Um, in older adulthood, the question is, can I accept what has been? Can I accept what has been for what it was? Not saying it was good, not saying it was bad, but can I accept it and can I accept what comes next? And as you can hear, right, there's no part of your life where questions of meaning and questions of acceptance are not relevant. <laughs> all of this is relevant to you at all times, but you will feel some of these questions more acutely at some times than others. And so that's why we wanna talk about all of them so that we have some language for asking these questions together, whatever is burdening you, whatever is hurting you. And I also wanna say, um, it is very likely that you will experience some of them acutely at not the age that it has been assigned to, right? Um, say you are a queer person who comes out when you're 55. All of a sudden, some of those young adulthood type questions of who am I, can I love, are super relevant to you at that age, right? Um, if you are someone who experiences trauma or pain in childhood, some of those am I safe questions become more relevant to you than they would at different stages of life. Say you're a young person, you're 17, and you get diagnosed with a terminal or possibly terminal illness. All of a sudden, these questions of acceptance are super relevant to you. 
And that's, and that's not even to take into account then the ways in which the world can mess with this order for us. One of the main ways that racism makes itself known in the world is that adults of color are treated like children and children of color are treated like adults, right? We hypersexualize black girls, we hyperpunish black boys, and then we infantilize black adults. And so you also have to be taking into account, here's what's happening inside of me, but then also here's what's happening inside of them. <laughs> here's the ways in which the world will not acknowledge what is the reality of my internal soul experience. So for lots of us, all four of these questions are relevant all of the time because our personal experience is changing and our community is changing. So you're not allowed to write any of these off. <laughs> That's the advice of this sermon series, right? Is all of these are questions that if you are going to have a full and sustained relationship with God are going to be really important ones for you to engage with, and I hope you do. So today we're focusing on young adulthood, right? This time of who am I? And can I love and be loved? And so we have chosen uh, one of just the one of the the most interesting people in the Bible for whom we see an entire lifespan. That's pretty unusual, right? It's like Moses and him, David, where we see him go from childhood to young adulthood to middle adulthood to older adulthood. And later in his life, David will screw up a lot, right? Uh, midlife, not David's finest hour. <laughs> and so on, on Midlife Sunday, you can think about that. But today, we want to think about young adulthood David, because there's a lot to learn about our young adulthood experience from watching someone go through it in what is seemingly such a different culture, such a different context, but so many of the questions are the same. And we can kind of learn about that. So we're going to do a, a kind of classic, like, Baptist line by line. We're going through the scripture, and we're seeing what it has to say to us about our experience of adolescence and adulthood. So if you could bring up the front. First, just a little bit of context on 1 Samuel, um, which originally, Samuel was just Samuel. It only got broken up later, right? So it's a big book that is all about kings um, during a time in Israel's history when it is being particularly successful militarily, right? So it's uh, strong, and there, is, uh, and there is an ambivalent relationship throughout this book and other books about what is the deal with kings. So on the one hand, kings are strong, powerful. We need them to win. They are a part of our military might. They have extraordinary gifts. On the other hand, every single king that the Bible depicts ends up messing up profoundly and being corrupted by power and leadership. None of them make it through without totally screwing up in response to power. Power is bad for these kings. Um, and so that's important to keep in mind as we're thinking about what the Bible thinks it's going to mean for David as he takes on some of these mantles of power. The person he is going to be talking to in this story is the current king, Saul. And Saul has gone through that exact um, path where Samuel, right, prophet and uh, priest connected to God, has sort of said to the people, nah, you don't want a king, right? Like, kings are a bad idea. Power is a bad idea. And the people have said, no, king, we want a king. And so Saul comes to be a king and to lead. And at first, it seems like it's going really well. And then Saul starts doing all of the same corrupt things that political leaders, it turns out, have been doing since day one. Some of us may find this a familiar story about our life. Um, and so there's a need for a new person to step in. And that's where we meet David, right? And so he's, he's being framed as this kind of new person. 
Um, and just to say, we're about to read a part of the story. Um, there's another part of Samuel where it seems like Saul and David have already met. And then in this part, it kind of seems like they're meeting again. And some people find that confusing, but I think it's actually a really good lesson on how to read the Bible, which is that over and over and over again, the Bible will tell a story two different ways right next to each other, and that is not a problem. That is just, it's not a concern, because the Bible's goal is not to be a rationally coherent advice column for your life, right? The Bible wants to tell the story of all of the things that have happened to God's people so that you might live into a story with God. And sometimes that means that there are contradictions in life, and that's part of the gift of the story, right? If I ask Vania, what were the most important things happening at UVC last summer, and how did they feel, right? And she wrote them down. And then I went over and I asked Lawrence, what were the most important things happening at UVC last summer? And you write them down. You weren't you know, here yet, but if you had been. Um, what they wrote would be different and neither one would be a lie, right? They would both be critically important for what was happening to the community. So if you ever see those contradictions, these are not things to be afraid of. They're things to lean into. They are a gift that your experience matters to. So when the words that David spoke were heard, David has gone to hang out with his brothers who are in the military. He's not old enough. And he's heard them talking about how there's this big dude named Goliath, champion of the other army who needs to be taken down. And David's first question to his brothers when he finds that out is not like, how am I going to serve my country? It's, what do I get if I kill him? <laughs> what are you going to give me? Um, and he finds out that the prize is actually quite big and quite good. And so he's like, I'm in. I'm going to go kill him. And so he goes to Saul the king. And Saul sends for him. And David sends to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I will do it. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a boy. He's been a warrior from his youth. How many people in young adulthood tried to get your first job and were told, you need five plus years of experience, actually, right? You are not prepared. You cannot do it. And you're like, I need a job, <laughs> right? I, I cannot prove myself unless somebody lets me prove myself. This is where David's at, right? So David is frustrated. David wants to do it. David wants to be the man. David wants to start his life. David wants to start being a grown-up. And the forces that be are calling him a boy and are calling him a child. And so he says... Saul, I promise, I have transferable relevant skills. Um, <laughs> your servant used to keep sheep for his father. I may, never have I may never have killed a Philistine before, but I have killed a lion and a bear. How much bigger can this guy be, right? He's saying, I have experiences just because I am young. Just because you haven't seen someone like me do it before doesn't mean I'm not capable. Look at what I have accomplished. I have killed a lion and a bear who came for me while I was watching my sheep. I have done things. I have lived. <laughs> My being younger than you does not mean that I have not accomplished, right? And took a lamb from the cloth. I went after it, and I struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. So he's making an argument for himself, right? This is how a lot of us spend some portion of young adulthood, is desperately advocating for our ability to make our way in the world and to be. Um, and one of the hard adjustments that we have to make like David is sometimes once we get power, we forget that having power is different than not having power, right? And you have to make adjustments when, you're, when you become the guy who then has power over other people, you're no longer the scrappy advocate who only thinks for himself. You have to think about others. David doesn't make that transition super well. I hope we make it better. So let's go to the next part. 
David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. So he's not just making an argument about what he can do, about what he has done. What convinces Saul in the end, and what a lot of people take as kind of the lesson of this story, is that David at the end puts his trust and confidence not in himself, but in God, right? God was with me then, God will be with me now. God was with me in whatever hardships I have experienced. I may not know what the next part of life looks like, but I know God will be with me in them too. Now that is good advice from a man who rarely gives it, right? That, that God is with you, that you can be convicted that however hard it looks or however hard it has looked, God was with you then. God got you through whatever it took to be alive and present in this moment. God will be there in the future. God will be there for whatever the next hardship is. And so Saul says to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Saul's convinced, right? He's like, well, what's the worst that can happen? He dies, I send somebody else. <laughs> I mean, they, right? Like Saul is not necessarily a like kind, affectionate, but he does want to give David a gift, right? He wants to make David the most likely to win this contest possible. And so he says, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor. This is actually kind of an extraordinary moment, right? A king giving a kid the armor off his back and the sword of his, uh, of, of his life as a warrior. He wants to say to him, you can do it. You can be just like me, right? It is a gift with, um, it seems, good intention. You can do it. And yet, and yet, what happens when David puts the armor on? He can barely walk in it. It feels uncomfortable. It feels itchy. It feels not like David, <laughs> right? It's, it's a gift, but it's a gift that burdens because it's not David's armor. It's Saul's. This is something that I think huge numbers of young adults experience, is that the people, whether it's in relationships, in your family, in mentorship at your job, who say to you that they want the best for you, who say to you that they want to lead you in ways, are um, not intentionally but distracted by the fact that what they really want is for you to become them, right? If anyone's in a PhD program, they know this about trying to find an advisor, um, right? That, that, that a mentor who is, who a mentor has to see that you are made by God different from them, right? A person who really cares about who you're going to become doesn't care about you becoming them, they care about you becoming you. <laughs> um, because another person's armor will not fit. Another person's sword will not do it. And so David makes a really hard but brave decision, <laughs> which is he takes this extraordinary gift off. Go to the next part. He says, I can't walk in these. I'm not used to them. They're not me. So I'm getting back into my shepherd's outfit. Will I look silly taking on the biggest warrior in this field in my little shepherd's outfit with no armor and no sword? Yes, I will, but I know how to throw a stone. I know who I am, right? This is a really important step for us to take in young adulthood, but also every phase of life when we feel like we're being forced into a situation where we're trying to become somebody else rather than trying to become the best version of ourselves. you gotta sometimes take the stand and say, like, I'm not a sword guy, I'm a stone guy. I'm gonna go get my stones by the river. I'm not an armor guy, right? I, I have to be myself in this, and yes, there is risk at that. I am made vulnerable by my lack of armor, but there is nothing worth not being myself. 
in whatever happens in life. I have to take it on my own terms. I will fail or I will succeed by who I am and who God has made me to be. And so we go to the next part. We're skipping the part that you are most likely to have read in church um, because I think you know what happens, which is that he wins, <laughs> right? David takes down Goliath, spoiler alert, uh, and takes Goliath's head and brings it back. And Saul's really impressed. And he says, who is this guy? Inquire who he is. We'll go on to the next part. Um, and Saul basically then decides to take David into his family so that he might become a military leader, so that he might be a person of power. And this is where we get to the part um, that I read to you about Jonathan, which is that Jonathan is Saul's son and overhears David talking to Saul about becoming a part of his new family. This is the other risk and the challenge of, of young adulthood, of becoming who you are, is that you often have to leave other things behind. David will no longer live with Jesse. He's going to live with Saul now. That's really sad. You also can't live with Jesse forever, right? Um, so he's experiencing mourning and grief, but he's also entering into this new life and new family. And Jonathan overhears it and says, I love him. He is of my soul. I will give him my armor. And here's the thing about the connection between who am I and can I love and be loved. Interpreters vary over what they think is happening between Jonathan and David here. You can decide what you think about what is happening here. I think it really sounds like love at first sight, right? I mean, it just everything that Jonathan says about David sounds like a man who is in love, right? Uh, his love is better to me than the soul of women. My soul is connected to him forever. My love is connected to him forever. It sounds to me like romantic, covenantal love. But whether it's romantic or platonic love, the question is actually the same, which is what does it mean to be made vulnerable to someone so that you promise that what happens to them happens to you and what happens to you happens to them? Whether it's in friendship, roommate, romantic relationship, doing the thing of young adulthood where you all of a sudden tie your life to other people's is really, really risky and scary. And really, really, you have to do it or life is so sad. You just have to be tied to other people. Because here's what happens when Jonathan makes that promise. When Jonathan makes that promise, it seems easy. This man is going to become a leader in my household. He's going to be on my team. I love him. We will be partners for life. We will be on the same team. This is going to be great. What's going to happen later is that Saul is going to start to hate David and want to kill him. And Jonathan's going to have to make a really hard decision between his family of origin, the people that he came from, and the people that he has now made his promise to. Will I decide for Saul or will I decide for David? And he decides for David. He keeps David alive by telling Saul a lie. And these are the hard decisions of becoming a person who loves other people, is that you might have to do stuff for them. You might have to take risks for them. And yet, without it, life is so cold. Life is so hard if you don't have people who are on your team and if you don't choose to be on anyone else's team. Here's the thing that I love about the comparison this scripture makes. Jonathan, too, gives David his armor. But this time, it's not this experience of unfit, of discomfort, of weirdness. Because Jonathan doesn't give his armor to David the way that Saul gives his armor to David, as a way to make him a copy, as a way to make him his. Jonathan gives his armor to David as a sign of his selfless love. I will give you anything because I am connected to you, because I promise that you and I are one, and so I will be generous. This isn't armor you have to wear. It isn't armor you have to become. You don't have to be me, but I give you my clothes because this is how I am tied to you. Part of finding out who I am 
is finding out who you are too. And these are the holy and life-giving loves that we might experience if we enter into the world in a generous way of being, <laughs> that we start to make promises to the people around us, friend, roommate, schoolmate, job mate, life mate, I will give up something for you. I will love you in ways that demand something of me. I will love you in ways that give up my armor and make me exposed to the world because there is no other way to grow and I don't want to stay protected forever. There's so much from David and Jonathan that we can learn about what it means to be a young adult, but also what at any age it means to ask the questions, who am I, who will I be, and how will I be that in relationship with others? I hope that in the weeks and months to come, we ask those questions, not just with David and Jonathan, but with one another, openly and honestly. Amen. <laughs>